Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, history friends. Zach Twomley here, reminding you that on the 29th of June, something very special is happening. We are going to petition to make New York New Amsterdam again. No, we're not. We're not going to do that. What we're doing instead is something far more interesting and important. We're going to have an intelligent speech conference involving all the podcasters you love, including Mike Duncan, Kevin Stroud, David Crowther, but not myself, because I can't go to America at this moment in time. The Intelligent Speech Conference is a really exciting venture that the Agora Podcast Network is launching. And hopefully, if it goes well enough, it could become an annual thing. Or maybe throughout the year, we could organize more of these conferences, and not just in America, but also maybe in Europe, maybe in the UK, all that kind of thing. Personally, I'm going to petition for a Dublin meetup just because it suits me the best, and maybe 
some of you guys out there would like to visit Dublin, and that'll be the perfect opportunity. If that sounds interesting, if you would like to petition for a Dublin meeting, why don't you pressure Royfield Brown, because he's the guy who makes these decisions. But maybe you don't care either way. Maybe you're not that interested in going to an intelligence speech conference, and maybe, personally, for you, you'd rather interact with people online. If that's the case, the app Flick has got you covered. We use Flick an awful lot these days. And it can be really handy for those of us that don't like Twitter or Facebook and want to stay away from all that nonsense. Are you sick and tired of the news feed bothering you with all this irrelevant garbage? Would you rather just talk to people who are as like-minded as you are about the subject of history? Would you like to discuss the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails? Whatever the heck that one is because there's so many of them these days. Then go and check out Flick by clicking on the link in the description below or just searching for the app Flick in the iTunes app store or in the android store whatever those stores are called not entirely sure in addition to those two things we've also been promoting the fact that from september we're going to be covering something really cool called poland is not yet lost which is a series that examines the polish lithuanian commonwealth from the beginning of the 1700s to the end of the 1700s now by the end of the 1700s poland at least geographically is quite lost because it gets partitioned into oblivion But as we will see, the story is not as straightforward or as, well, as boring as that. It's far more interesting. And of course, delving into the 1700s from the Polish perspective is really cool because, yeah, it means we get to delve into the 1700s, which is an era I really find super interesting. Poland is not yet lost. It'll be running parallel to our 30 years war examination. And I cannot wait to drop all that stuff on you guys. From September, of course, we'll be doing a much-released schedule. We'll only be doing bi-weekly episodes of the Thirty Years' War, and every other week will be Poland is not yet lost. So it will actually make a difference by then if you become a patron at the $5 level. You won't be in the situation you're in now where you have so much content, you feel like you're basically drowning with my voice basically pushing you under all that history. That's a really weird image, and I'm not going to talk about that any longer because it'll get weirder. What I am going to do instead is encourage you to check out patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails because we're not just reducing our schedule to give me some more sanity. We're also reducing it because from September I'm starting a history PhD in Trinity College Dublin and that's really exciting. It's a very important step in my life and it's basically all because of you. Now if you just started listening right this second to this podcast i'm afraid it's not actually because of you but it is for those of you that have been with this podcast for a long time so thanks so much to you and hey if you just joined stick around we've got some real cool stuff to come but also actually what are you doing listening to episode 73 of this series you must not have any idea what's going on or maybe you just want to know what the german counter proposals were all about if so maybe zach will finally stop rambling and get down to it Without any further ado, then, let's do further. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 73. Hello and welcome, history friends. 
patrons all, to episode 73 of the Versiniversary Project. Well, history friends, it all comes down to this. Sort of. Technically, of course, it all comes down to the 28th of June when the Germans signed. However, to my mind, few stop-offs on the way to that date are more significant than the 29th of May 1919, where, a month before the signature was added in the Hall of Mirrors, the Germans attempted, with incredible resourcefulness and dexterity, to present to the Allies a fully comprehensive document which amounted to a repudiation of everything that the Allies had worked on over the previous five months. In terms of the timeline, this presented a neatly wrapped up sequence of main events. The treaty's draft was presented on the 7th of May, the Germans considered these terms, and following several delays they delivered their answer on the 29th of May. The Allies considered these German answers, and on the 16th of June they delivered their repudiation of the counter-proposals, insisting that the Germans must sign. Facing that challenge, the German government collapsed, and a new ministry was formed on the 21st of June, which eventually agreed, following some last-minute protests, to sign on the 23rd of June. Then they faffed around for a few days and decided who would actually be willing to go and sign that treaty, and then they signed the treaty on the 28th of June, as we all know, or at least you know a few of those main events by this point. This brief timeline shows us where our story is headed for the next month, and I'm sure I speak for all of us when I say it's been a long time coming. A real benefit in tracing these events from a century ago, as they occur, is that I have a great chance to drive you insane, but it also gives me an opportunity in all seriousness to capture what labouring through these months of work was actually like for all involved. Let me put it this way, if you feel tired after all of this, just imagine what the big three must have felt like after living through it all. Imagine also how they must have felt when the German counter-proposals were received. According to their terms on the 7th of May, the Germans could make suggestions, but they could not fundamentally have any power to alter the treaty. It is remarkable in some sense that the Allies laboured to examine and respond to these counter-proposals for the next fortnight, but as we'll see in this episode and into the future, the reasons for doing so were multi-layered. Not only did figures like David Lloyd George want genuinely to examine the merit in these counter-proposals, but those in charge of propping up Allied PR in the populations of the world knew that a stern rebuke of the German counter-proposals was critically important to justify their positions. Today, we are armed, first and foremost, with that document of the German counter-proposals, but since it is in excess of 100 pages, we will not be quoting from it in full. We're also armed with the opinions of legions of contemporaries and historians who weighed in at the time and many years later on the whole situation. The situation, if you weren't aware, ensured that the month of May would go out with a bang, and as the big three continued to fulminate over the Italian requests and attended plenary conferences where the Austrian treaty was read out, all they were really thinking of was whether, in fact, Germany might have had a point and how they could either absorb these points or discount them without coming off badly. So our task today is a formidable one, history friends. We have to analyse something which has never properly been analysed in a podcast, and which few books even take the time to properly consider. Sounds like business as usual for us, then. So without any further ado, I think it's only right to take you to the mind of Harold Nicholson, who, on the evening of the 29th of May, learned, much like so many of his colleagues, about what the Germans had just done. But, like so many of his colleagues, he was busy with something else at the time. With the receipt of the German counter-proposals on the 29th of May, 
One might have expected all the Allied delegates to begin working overtime to translate them and work through their terms, literally dropping what else they were doing. Yet, Harold Nicholson's diary reminds us that at the same time that these long-awaited proposals were received, the conference was busy indeed with other work, mostly Austrian work. It was a strange period of limbo in May, which was certainly viewed as a distraction by the Big Three, yet because German moves had yet to be confirmed, up to the 29th of May, time was spent surprisingly liberally on other issues, as the Council of Four Minutes attest. The sentence... I spent the afternoon translating a portion of the German counterproposals. Is the only hint from Nicholson of what incredible development had just come to pass. Yet Nicholson spends far more time detailing a fascinating scene, which really captures the imagination and reminds us how occasionally informal and haphazard the Allied decision-making process could be. Nicholson wrote, Round to President Wilson's house. We all find the experts there. We all assemble in the upstairs drawing room while the four meet below. After about half an hour they enter the room, Clemenceau and Lloyd George side by side on a sofa. President Wilson takes a map, spreads it on the carpet in an alcove room and kneels down. We all squat in a circle around him. It is like Hunt the Slipper. He explains what has been decided downstairs about the Yugoslav frontier. He does this with perfect lucidity. Princeton returns to him. Towards the end, Orlando and an Italian technician say that it will be inconvenient to leave one end in one country and the other end in another country. The president, still kneeling on the floor, throws back his great face and looks upwards to heaven and the paintings on Madame Bischofheim's ceiling. Why? he exclaims. I have not come to Paris to discuss inconvenience. In my judgment, the test is what the people themselves want. There is no question of his sincerity, yet he must know somewhere inside himself that our minds, long ago, have slid away from all such altitudes. Nicholson's account reminds us that there was more to the Paris Peace Conference than Germany. Indeed, Nicholson had had little time to consider Germany, fluttering between his Greek and Czechoslovak committees, travelling to Bolshevik Budapest, just generally doing his best to keep up with the still considerable duties he had as a foreign office clerk. We should also assume that Nicholson's experience was typical of most Allied officials, since there was simply so much work to be done and so many stories to be told. This has been the real challenge of the Peace Conference for me, since even though the Versailles Anniversary Project is the name of the game, listener requests on my own inherent curiosity moves me in so many different directions, I can sometimes barely think of where to go next. I comfort myself in the fact that even the great Margaret Macmillan in her once-in-a-generation tome, The Peacemakers, which we've cited several times, did not try to be all things to all people. In fact, to put this in perspective for you, she spends just 34 out of her 503 pages examining the period from the first week of May to the 28th of June. And that's not a criticism that she spends only 34 pages doing that, because she examines other topics in more detail, which I have not had time to examine. But it should hopefully serve as an example of the unique challenge which the Paris Peace Conference presents. We are the Versailles Anniversary Project here. We're not the Paris Peace Conference podcast. And so we will begin laser focusing our narrative onto the final phases of the creation of that Treaty of Versailles at the expense of other stories which are also interesting and difficult for me to leave behind. But I do have to exclude them, otherwise we'll be at this project forever. 
and I'll have no hope of ever concluding this project satisfactorily, or leaving behind a proper beginning-to-end analysis of the Treaty of Versailles that fulfills my original objective. This disclaimer may well be unnecessary, but for those hoping that I'll be delving into the Greco-Turkish War, or the Polish-Soviet War, or the other peace treaties of the Central Powers, or the Irish War of Independence, which I've gotten a lot of requests for, I'm afraid that you, like myself, will be disappointed that I cannot be all things to all history friends. It is probably fitting that this episode is where I properly clarify this, because it is the most German-centric, Treaty of Versailles-obsessed instalment I have released yet. Going forward, it is that treaty and these parties that will occupy us. It is therefore convenient for us that Nicholson serves as a final farewell to Austria's treaty process. He concluded the day of the 29th of May by noting that following these decisions, the experts are sent away to draw up the articles to be inserted in the Austrian treaty in time for its presentation tomorrow. The Italians, Nicholson said, continue to be difficult throughout the rest of the day. The Italians shuffle like fish upon the grass, Nicholson notes, before adding, but in the end, the thing is launched off to the drafting committee in correct form. The omnipresent drafting committee was certainly earning its wages by this point. They were also soon to be inundated with requests to work on the German counterproposals, to translate them and coordinate Allied counterproposals to these counterproposals, which I suppose in the Allied case could be called counter-counterproposals. Anyway, the sheer volume of work was something to behold, and it was all hands on deck. Neither Nicholson nor the drafting committee was the only entity to be occupied at this moment of significance, though. At three o'clock, we went to the Quai d'Orsay to attend a plenary conference which was called for the purpose of reading the Austrian Treaty, wrote Edward House in his diary that evening on the 29th, before adding, I had no intention of remaining during such a dreary performance, and after shaking hands with most of the delegates and placing myself in evidence, I returned to the Hotel Creon. Like House, our project will focus its attentions on the mission that truly mattered to the Big Three by the end of May, that being making the German peace. The task of outlining the different articles and sections of the draft treaty is far too formidable a task to undertake here. For the record, I did try to do it in the episode originally. By that I mean I went through literally every section of the treaty as it had been formed and tried to basically break it down and explain it to you, but it was simply too dense and too long a mission, so I decided to save that examination for the episode released on the 28th of June. Don't worry, for those afraid of the very idea of such an examination, I'm going to place that examination on the 28th of June at the very back end of the episode, so you can avoid it if you wish. But today, bearing in mind some of the broad terms of the treaty, such as its talk on the League of Nations, German borders, the situation in other European states, establishing the legal basis for reparations, issues like the Free City of Danzig, the International Labour Organization, which we've pretty much not at all talked about, and several other concerns, the Allies found that the German counter-reposals had an answer for virtually every single one of these. The historian Klaus Schwab, who we've quoted from an awful lot during this project, explained their qualities, writing, On May 29th, the German comments on the treaty were presented to the victorious powers in a formidable volume over 100 pages long. The German counterproposals were linked together in a number of respects. The reparations offer was made contingent 
on the maintenance of Germany's territorial holdings as of 1914, to the extent that these holdings were not reduced. As a consequence of the right of self-determination of the inhabitants of Alsace-Lorraine, of Schleswig and of other parts of the province of Posen. The offer was also made dependent on the re-establishment of Germany's participation in world trade. Still another link was created between disarmament and membership in the League of Nations. Membership in the World Organization, along with a democratic form of government and disarmament in the new Germany, would, it was hoped, make further political guarantees for Germany's abiding by the treaty's terms unnecessary. The German counter-proposals, therefore, contained several themes and linked arguments, and should not be imagined as a straightforward rebuking of each of the 440 articles in turn. This was a document that had been crafted by experts, although, as the historian Guntram Heinrich Herb writes, The German counter-proposals were developed by the German delegation in Paris, with the help of a group of experts in the Foreign Office in Berlin. However, neither the delegation nor the group of experts included geographers, that is, specialists on maps. Apart from government officials, the people involved in German peace negotiations were mainly representatives of banks, industry, shipping and private businessmen. We've learned in the past how important maps were for the Allies when considering their conclusions for Europe. Nicholson's diary extract portrays the Big Three poring over just such a map when attempting to create the borders of Austria. Perhaps if the Germans had made heavier use of maps, their protests would have carried more weight. As it was, though, the Germans honed in on issues of justice and fairness, attempting to define these concepts in their favour and meeting the Allied demands defiantly rather than harnessing resources like maps to hammer home their case scientifically. In addition, it is worth underlining the fact that the Allies and the Germans, essentially from the beginning, were operating under very different ideological frameworks. And by that I mean, it is so often said that the Big Three simply violated the principles of the 14 points, or ideas of a just peace which had induced Germany to agree to the armistice in the first place. Yet, as the historian Thomas A. Bailey understood it, writing in 1947, this portrayal of Allied hypocrisy and German dupes is incorrect. Bailey wrote, When the Germans laid down their arms on the basis of Wilson's promises of a piece of right and impartial justice, they were clearly labouring under a very serious misapprehension. They were evidently thinking of mercy and leniency when they thought of right, fairness and justice. They evidently did not realise that these three words mean different things to different men and at different times. They evidently failed to observe that justice meant one thing to them, a different thing to the Allies and still a different thing to the neutrals. They evidently failed to understand that what is justice in a war-charged atmosphere may be something different from justice in a peaceful atmosphere. Anyone who talked about genuine justice was regarded as pro-German. Such relative and flexible terms need definition and application by impartial judges, and the Germans failed to realise that the Allies, in determining what justice should be, would be the sole determinants. Wilson, who was one of the chief judges, thought of himself as impartial and disinterested. He had in fact told his experts on the George Washington vessel that they would be the only disinterested people at the conference. The truth is that Wilson was not impartial or disinterested. No man could be who had just passed through the recent bath of propaganda, war hatred and atrocity stories. 
but were the Germans wrong to imagine that a just peace meant that they would not suffer for making it? To some extent it is possible to argue that the German negotiators in October and November 1918, and those Germans who oversaw the receipt of the draft treaty terms six months later in May 1919, should have known better than to have hoped for such miracles. Not for nothing have historians underlined the very relevant fact that the Germans had dealt incredibly harshly with their previously vanquished enemies, most famously Bolshevik Russia, but also Romania in spring 1918. With these treaties stripping those powers of so much, how could the Germans seriously believe that anything other than a punitive peace awaited them, notwithstanding what they were told? Of course, to this we can say that the Allies certainly went out of their way to make the Germans believe that a fair peace would be in the offing. There was no effort on the part of Woodrow Wilson, for example, to clarify to the Germans that when he proclaimed his desire for a fair and just peace, he meant the Allied conceptions of fair and just. It is also reasonable to assert that some Allied leaders believed that Germans would not be punished and would later rally against the draft treaty when they perceived it as going too far. If the Germans were the only people to be utterly taken aback by the peace treaty delivered on the 7th of May, if they were the only ones, in other words, to believe in an impossibly fair peace, then the rupture in the Anglo-American delegations would not have taken place, and the counter-proposals which the Germans delivered on the 29th of that month would not have seemed so reasonable to so many Allied delegates, including the British Prime Minister. There was of course a contradiction inherent in what the Germans expected, and what they could possibly have gotten at the peace table, considering that all the inhabitants had been through so much and they had done so much to each other. This should go without saying, and it should also go without saying that contradictions in the characters of the Big Three do not help our story reach a satisfying, unitary conclusion. I don't think it will be too much of a spoiler to denote that our conclusion for this project is appearing remarkably similar to the conclusion which we reached for the July Crisis anniversary project. The idea that People are inherently messy, therefore, so is this diplomacy. But what did the Germans actually have to say for themselves? Notwithstanding the somewhat entitled, incredibly naive way in which they went about it, what did the Germans want to make plain in their counter-proposals? Unfortunately for the Germans, the more than 100-page document was not written by a single individual, instead it was crafted by several men, And the problem with this was that the tone changed multiple times during the document, in contrast to some of the moderate ideas which the counter-proposals held, such as the idea that German membership of the League could help guarantee peace and that punitive military terms were unnecessary. A sizable portion of the counter-proposals were written by old-school German lawyers who fundamentally rejected the premise of the Allies for demanding reparations and who loudly criticised, and indelicately criticised, the perceived hypocrisy between Wilson's 14 points, peace without victory idea and the end product which they had gotten. Perhaps these Germans failed to appreciate the pressures that the Allies were under, particularly Wilson in light of the Republican domination of Congress to deliver a harsh peace which would justify the treaty and buoy enthusiasm for it. In fact, one could not accuse the Germans of being unaware of the divisions within the Allied camp. Yet, one could very easily criticise the Germans for failing to take advantage of them, or for using them to their advantage in a more sensitive, effective way. This is a point which Thomas A. Bailey effectively underlines, writing, 
The waters were so troubled that a German diplomat of the calibre of Talleyrand undoubtedly could have fished to advantage. If the Germans, instead of vehemently attacking every objectionable feature of the treaty, whether minor or major, had tactfully concentrated their fire on a few essential points, they might have conceivably won substantial concessions. But they had no Talleyrand. They tactlessly and angrily filed voluminous objections to everything objectionable, and in this way forced the Allies into a blanket defence of their admittedly unsatisfactory handiwork. Indeed, the Germans had no Talleyrand, but one imagines that if they had even had several more capable, self-aware men, then they would have done a better job. Is it possible that German anger at the perceived injustice of the moment clouded their judgement and prevented the Germans from doing anything other than seeing red and standing on their pedestal of outrage? Perhaps, but it is also hard to imagine how the situation could have gone any differently. Rightly or wrongly, the Germans were expecting a certain treaty, and rightly or wrongly, the Allies did not deliver this certain treaty to Ulrich von brockdorff rantzau It was certainly telling that their counter-proposals undermined the sense of Allied unity, and also aggravated feelings of guilt which certain delegates were beginning to have. By this point, we imagine that a few such delegates might actually have read the treaty in full, yet there is no indication that any of the big three ever did. Certainly it would have taken a little while for these counter-proposals to hit home, largely because they were communicated in German and all 100 plus pages would have to be carefully translated before the debate could go any further. This was a practical issue, which, while we may state it here and while it may sound obvious, was a serious issue which would have to be overcome before the English or French-speaking delegates could proceed any further. On the afternoon of the 29th of May, as these counter-proposals were coming in and had yet to be translated, House met with Lloyd George and recalled, George and I discussed the German objections. This was the purpose of the luncheon. Lloyd George always amuses me. I am sure he does not like me, and yet today one would have thought I was his best friend. He desires to use me because he knows he is to have a fight with Clemenceau about softening the terms, and he also knows that public opinion in England demands such softening. I always lead him one, and then let him feel that I am innocent of his motives, and that he apparently succeeds in accomplishing his purposes with me. I enjoy being with him because he has so much charm and such a fine sense of humour, It is a great pity that some of his qualities cause one to distrust him. One such figure who distrusted Lloyd George was none other than George Clemenceau, who House recorded as meeting the next day on the 30th of May, and who did not hesitate to ask House what he and Lloyd George had discussed. Clemenceau wished to make it plain that he would not budge on the treaty in spite of what the Germans or Lloyd George might say. House recorded his very revealing thoughts, not just on Clemenceau's stance, but also on the treaty generally, thoughts which were certainly at odds with those of the President, who House had spent so many weeks supporting and bolstering. House wrote, Clemenceau declared that he intended to stand firm against any substantial reduction in the terms of the treaty, no matter what the consequences. In my opinion, if he does this, he will win. I am not sure if his policy is best. The treaty is not a good one. It is too severe, and notwithstanding the President believes it is well within the 14 points, It is far afield from them. However, the time to have made the treaty right was when it was being formed, and not now. It is a question, if one commenced to unravel what has already been done, whether it could be stopped. It is also a question as to the effect upon the Germans. 
I desired from the beginning a fair peace, and one well within the 14 points, and one which could stand the scrutiny of the neutral world and of all time. It is not such a peace, but since the treaty has been written, I question whether it could be well to seriously modify it. The idea that the treaty should not be reopened for fear of it leading to a untimely reconsideration of all of its articles, or the notion that the treaty's inherent unfairness could be excused because to pass the treaty made sense at the time, these might all seem like limp arguments. Indeed, House doesn't exactly inspire confidence that he believed the treaty was a good one, or that he was particularly pleased with the work he had put into it. Perhaps, more than anything else, after having resided in Paris since October and worked tirelessly since, maybe House just dreaded the idea that the whole process would begin again, and that the process would drag out for another six months. He was certainly tiring of the President, at least, and he appeared to be losing faith in him by this point. House later wrote in his diary entry of the 30th of May that The feeling has become fairly general that the President's actions do not square with his speeches. There is a bon mot going around in Paris and London. Wilson talks like Jesus and acts like Lloyd George, it says. My own feeling is that he is influenced by his constant association with Clemenceau and Lloyd George. I seldom or never have a chance to talk with him seriously, and for the moment he is practically out from under my influence. When we meet it is to settle some pressing problem and not to take inventory of things in general or plan for the future. This is what we used to do. If I could have the president in quiet, I am certain I could get him to square his actions with his words. As a matter of fact, the president does not truly feel as I do, although I have always been able to appeal to his intellectual liberalism. Whether House couldn't bring himself to admit it, or whether he simply did not realise, Wilson was not out of his influence for the moment, but for good. The President never seems to have forgiven House for supposedly giving way to French demands while he was back in the United States, or for setting him up to fail in the American tour of late February and early March. While a good friend and confidant was exactly what Wilson would have needed at this stage in the negotiations, particularly as House was a member of the five-man American delegation, and Wilson was ignoring the other three as it was, the relationship between the two men was never the same again. Had their relationship been maintained, it is possible that sceptics like House might have eventually have moved Wilson to change his mind, which would have played into Lloyd George's epiphany on the treaty and the need to change it, which arrived early in June, and which also could have thoroughly distressed Clemenceau. As it was, though, Wilson remained convinced, or perhaps he had by now no other choice than to convince himself that the treaty arrived at by early May was the correct one, and was in line with the principles he had loudly and publicly stated before. As Thomas A. Bailey wrote, There can be no doubt that the great body of Allied negotiators, including Wilson, felt that the severities of the treaty were a merited punishment. In fact, less than a merited punishment for having wantonly forced this horrible calamity upon humanity. Wilson was a stern rather than a merciful man, and his idea of justice was the Calvinist concept of an angry God meeting out just deserts to depraved sinners. In his later public defence of the treaty, he declared time and again that the pact was severe but just. Lloyd George privately said, and the humane Herbert Hoover wrote essentially the same thing, that if right and justice were granted out to the Boches, they would be crushed out of existence. Public opinion in the Allied countries felt the same way. 
The press of the United States abounded in such statements as Her offences considered, Germany gets off lightly indeed. The terms were essentially just in view of the colossal calamity which Germany brought upon the world. And it is a harsh treaty, but it could not have been otherwise and be just. How, indeed, can one measure what one other state deserves because of its actions in the war? This was also a question that the Allies were bound to struggle with. How much punishment, in addition, did the Germans think their actions warranted? There was the obvious concession, like handing Alsace-Lorraine back, or providing the funds to repair damage done to Belgium and northern France. Leading Germans also argued that what had been done to Belgium full stop had been morally wrong. Yet at the same time, the Germans continued to argue that they had not been defeated in the war, and that they had only stopped fighting because the Allies had lied to them and made them agree to sign a peace treaty under false pretenses. And that now, the Allies were hammering the nails far deeper in than was fair. Contradictions, in other words, existed in the German camp as well as the Allied camp, and this was something I wanted to underline in our earlier introduction episodes. This idea that Germany, having lost the war, faced like every other state in every other war that ever lost a war, well, they faced consequences. Dealing with these Germans was not so simple as approaching them from a standpoint of their objections being just or unjust. It was important to bear in mind that the Allies were still at war with Germany according to international law. This indeed is so often forgotten when historians argue from the perspective of should have known better or should have been more merciful. It is pure speculation, of course, to argue that without the Treaty of Versailles there would have been no Second World War, because taking Hitler's example alone, it was not the peace treaty, but the fact that the war had been lost, which so rankled German opinion and ingrained a sense of shame and desire for revenge. These sentiments made the Second World War possible, but so did the murderous, racist vision of German destiny, which had roots earlier in German history and other movements like social Darwinism, eugenics and anti-Semitism. Intending to boil the first five decades of the 20th century into a simple formula of cause and effect is like, well, it's like trying to define Nazism with a single adjective. It is impossible and futile because it suggests that causation balances on a straightforward, rational sequence of events and decisions and that timely interventions can block their momentum. It is also dangerously reductionist to blame the peacemakers at Versailles for the atrocities of the Nazis. To use another comparison, this would be akin to blaming the Russian Civil War for the paranoid fantasies of Stalin. I don't know of any historian worth their salt that would make the argument that the Russian Civil War or the Allied interventions in the Russian Civil War caused Stalin, yet it is just as valuable as that which argues that the well-intentioned peacemakers spawned Hitler and the Second World War by their failures and successes during the Paris Peace Conference. The debate, as we can see, is one which can easily sidetrack us. We're 40 minutes in and we haven't even looked at what the Germans actually said. So at the risk of becoming distracted again, let's tackle the mission that we're actually here for now. To begin with, let's recap on basic outlines of what the Germans objected to within the treaty. The historian and contemporary of the Paris Peace Conference, George Creel, summarised these objections in his 1920 book, The War, the World and Wilson, writing, The principal German contentions were these, that the peace was one of violence, not justice, that Germany did not commence the war, and that the Allies had stated repeatedly that they were not making war on the German people. 
It should be taken into consideration that the people were now in power and that the new government should not be held responsible for the faults of the former government. The Germans could proclaim to be hard done by, but thanks to the incredible active efforts of the Allies, they could not claim that their negotiations with the Big Three had been confined to secrecy or that the Allies didn't listen to them in the run-up to the delivery of the counter-proposals. Despite being open to liberal or minimal interpretations, the Allies decided to interpret the notion of German suggestions very liberally indeed, donating a great deal of time to the consideration of these counter-proposals. As George Creel wrote, To charge that the Germans were not heard enough is a well-nigh incredible distortion of the facts. Oral discussion was barred for the very sound and sensible reason that meetings would have degenerated into unseemly wrangles, with anger putting argument to one side, not to mention the obvious effect of daily recrimination upon the populations of the various countries. On the other hand, written arguments and counter-proposals were invited, and the Germans took full advantage of the privilege. All in all, a full score of objections and appeals were filed, and these notes, with the Allied replies, were given instant publication so that the world might follow the negotiations. Indeed, the Allies had publicised virtually all of the German approaches during the month. On the 10th of May, the Germans discussed at length the clauses relating to the repatriation of prisoners. On the 12th of May, the question of reparations. On the 13th of May, the proposed territorial changes. On the 16th of May, the Tsar Basin. On the 22nd of May, the International Labour Organisation. On the 23rd of May, the report of the German Economic Commission was published, together with the Allied reply. No fairer method of hearing could have been devised, opined George Creel, because Instead of the hot give-and-take of oral debate, confined necessarily to a few principal figures, the Germans were allowed time and opportunity for thought, for study and for consultation, in order that their replies might be full and authoritative, expressing the deliberate opinions of their experts. The publication of these communications between the Germans and the Allies was certainly a sensible move for the Big Three because it demonstrated to their populations what the foe was working towards and that the Allies had nothing to hide. It also helped the reputation to illustrate that they were doing all in their powers to work for peace. Peace was something that everyone wanted by this point and nobody could accuse the Big Three of failing to make use of every lever to arrive at a peace treaty short of wholly accommodating the Germans and their requests. From the 29th of May until the Allies sent out their reply to the German terms on the 16th of June, George Creel noted that The Council worked on the German counter-proposals, weighing every word, analysing every claim, for it was the moral judgement of mankind that would pass upon the result of their labours. Indeed, the moral judgement of mankind was passed on the Big Three, and it can generally be said that this judgement has been unkind and negative. There's a reason why Macmillan's book is called Daringly Revisionist, and why I feel like I'm going against the grain with this project. Of course, the most significant entity that delivered this harsh judgement of what the Allies had decided was the Germans themselves. Their counter-proposals as a document were incredibly detailed and well-researched. Not just the facts on the ground, but also pieces of old speeches which Wilson had made were brought in to make their points. It was structured, as was the Treaty of Versailles, with a contents page, but the counter-proposals were introduced with a long and winding dialogue presented by Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau on the inherent injustice of the treaty and its terms. Thus, from the moment one reads them, 
one gets the feel for the tone of the document. It was, as we said before, strangely mixed in tone, ranging from deferential and moderate to defiant and even condescending. The opening paragraph of Brockdorf Ransau's introduction provides us with a good window into its course, as the German foreign minister wrote, Mr. President, I have the honour to transmit to you herewith the observations of the German delegation on the draft Treaty of Peace. We came to Versailles in the expectation of receiving a peace proposal based on the agreed principles. We were firmly resolved to do everything in our power with a view to fulfilling the grave obligations which we had undertaken. We hoped for the peace of justice which had been promised to us. We were aghast when we read in that document the demands made upon us by the victorious violence of our enemies. The more deeply we penetrated into the spirit of the treaty, the more convinced we became of the impossibility of carrying it out. The exactions of this treaty are more than the German people can bear. In some opening points, Brockdorf Ranzo establishes his perspective on several key issues. Germany would commit to repairing the regions of Belgium and France where Germany's war effort had destroyed. The number of 100 billion gold marks was established as the maximum Germany would pay in reparations. The ports of Danzig, Königsberg and Memel were to be ceded. Germany approves of the International Labour Organization. She commits to placing her merchant marine at the disposal of the Allies and other conciliatory terms. Yet, in the same paragraphs are interspersed strangely delusional requests. Germany hands over Alsace-Lorraine to France, for instance, but she wants a free plebiscite for the region, despite the extreme sensitivity of this idea to France, and the fact that Germany would have known it was extremely sensitive. Germany will hand her colonies over to the jurisdiction of the League of Nations, just so long as Germany can be proclaimed as the mandatory power for these colonies. An independent commission would be founded to establish war guilt, thus challenging the key premise of Article 231, on which German provision of reparations was based. These are only the most important among the proposals which we have to make, noted Brockdorf Ransau's introduction, adding that, As regards other great sacrifices, and also as regards the details, the delegation refers to the accompanying memorandum and annex thereto. We are under no delusions regarding the strength of the hatred and bitterness which this war had engendered, Brockdorf Ransau concludes, adding that, And yet the forces which are at work for a union of mankind are stronger now than they ever were before. The historic task of the Peace Conference of Versailles is to bring about this union. The counter-proposals were divided into two parts, the first part effectively tearing the draft treaty to pieces by alluding to the countless expressions of Allied leaders, Wilson was never explicitly mentioned, which caused the Germans to feel hopeful up to this point. This section would have read like a German commentary on the recent history of the late war and peace negotiations, and it was typically long and detailed. This section proved by far the more controversial for the American delegation in particular, because it outlined, in several steps, how the American president had gradually distanced himself from his old values and principles, in favour of peace terms which were surely at odds with his old pronouncements. Wilson, as we have seen, dug his heels in when presented with these arguments. And as we will see when we examine the Allied reply to this document on the 16th of June, the Allies eventually determined that, in fact, what they had said in the past did not contradict with what they were doing now. 
The second part of the treaty was the longer, and addressed virtually all of the sections of the draft treaty in turn. The League of Nations, territorial questions, German rights and interests outside of Germany, reparations, prisoners of war, penalties for breaking the treaty, comments on the International Labour Organization, and guarantees were all discussed. The end result was something more comprehensive and detailed than anything the Allies could have expected the Germans to produce. Expectant, for sure, of some kind of response, and probably a rebuttal, there was no way that the Allies could have known precisely how thorough the challenge to their peacemaking was going to be. However, they would have had some hints, based purely on the fact that the Germans had asked for several delays, and that Brockdorf Ransau weighed in only lightly on several issues, which were here encapsulated into the single counter-proposals document. Notwithstanding whether they should have seen it coming or been more prepared for its delivery, these counter-proposals changed the debate in the Allied camp like nothing else. For a time, it even seemed as though they might alter the post-war order and the composition of the Allied camp. Alas, though, it was not to be, as the reply of the 16th of June demonstrated. Before they got to that point, though, the German counter-proposals created ripples which took more than two weeks to settle down. As May turned to June in 1919, it was plain that yet another challenge would open the month. With some exceptions, the draft treaty of the 7th of May was the same document that we know as the Treaty of Versailles, signed and approved on the 28th of June. By the first few days of June, though, this outcome was far from clear indeed. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.